It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Welcome to this week's episode. It's ad-free again because it was recorded during the period of national mourning for the Queen. He will be back as normal next week, which, if I have my dates right, is our fifth anniversary. Fingers crossed we will have something special for you. But don't turn off now, please. I think this is a really good episode. We're talking David and Goliath. How underdogs can take on much bigger organisations, companies, or even governments to challenge unfair treatment, seek justice, and ultimately lead to change for the better. If you're an overdog or an overdog fan, I'll ask you to leave now. I'm going to be speaking to Sophia Moreau, who challenged her employer over unequal pay and then led a campaign to end student maternity discrimination. Also, I'm joined by Jason Evans, who spearheaded the campaign for the victims of the contaminated blood scandal and their families. And then finally, I'll be speaking to Alicia Alenia from the law firm Pogus Goodhead, which has organised collective action for victims in Brazil affected by the Mariana Dam collapse in 2015, and hearing what a recent ruling on that could mean for the future of corporate behaviour. I hope you enjoy it. As ever, let us know your thoughts and ideas for future subjects you'd like to hear at cheerfulpodcast.com. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. With me now is Sophia Moreau, who, amongst many other things, is a campaigner. She's also an employment tribunal mentor with our friends at Pregnant Men Screwed. Hello, Sophia. Hello. Thanks for talking to us on our David and Goliath episode. And you have a track record on this. I should add uh, as a David, not as a Goliath. Let's start with your story then. Absolutely, yes. My first experience in a David and Goliath style battle was in the workplace in one of my earliest roles, in fact. How old would you have been at the time? I would have been about 19 years old. I had been in the workforce for about three years by that point, but it was one of my earliest roles. 
tell us a little bit about that, what, what the issue was. It was, a, it was around equal pay. I'd been to that point primarily working in non-profit organisations in equality or anti-trafficking and areas of that nature. And I was working for a local authority and I had a contract where I was supposed to have a pay band where at the lower end it was a certain amount per hour and at the higher end it was perhaps three or four pounds difference. And I was of the impression that it would be based on um, a set number of years of experience, for example. And then I believe a few weeks later, just over the course of lunchtime, I found out what a male colleague was being paid. And he was being paid, I want to say, between three and five grand difference per year from what I was being paid. And we had identical jobs. Actually, that's wrong. We didn't have identical jobs. My job was actually more complex. So we were both working in the transport function of the organization. And I was working with higher needs stakeholders. I queried this. And I think around the same time, I also saw my role being advertised at two pound more per hour. And then the justification was it's probably his job that's being advertised. If I think back to being that age... Um, I could imagine running my mouth about it, maybe in the canteen or in the pub after work with people. But I think I would have been scared to make a fuss, which, of course, is the the wrong way to think about it. But when you're kind of young and inexperienced, I mean, did it feel scary to spot that injustice and then think, actually, I'm going to do something about this, regardless of what the consequences might be? It definitely felt scary. I'd say... Even in the years since where I've been campaigning, that fear never really goes away. It's more, does your anger and your sense of being completely livid at what has happened, does that outweigh it? And I think at that moment it did simply because I was quite lucky. Um, That's probably a strange word to use, but I was lucky that I had such a clear comparator where I had quite simple circumstances where I could show something unfair has happened. In most cases, that's not the way it is. And did anyone tell you not to make a fuss? Absolutely. So at the time, quite a lot of the staff were initially outsourced through an agency and then the agency were saying, oh, no, that's quite common. They were trying to downplay it. They also tried to make excuses that made it worse. So um, there was the suggestion that it might be due to my age, as though that's not also a form of (laughs) discrimination in itself. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I would say that the common attitude is more that your career will face consequences. So you should be quiet. I ended up, unfortunately, having to resign within a few weeks. I did try and challenge it and went absolutely nowhere. And it was more the hostility that I was met with and being made to feel a bit like I was silly for bringing it up or for having an issue with it or a difficult woman that I didn't feel welcome there in any case. Was there a victory before you left? They did acknowledge that we were being paid unequally, but there was a refusal to increase my pay to match. Right. So it doesn't sound like a victory, but sometimes the admission of the wrong is the victory. Just to jump forward and think about the work you've done subsequently, when there are factors like race or age or the fact that you're a woman, people in companies, these things are systemic. And the people you're talking to are never going to say, oh, yes, it is about that because, you know, they, they don't think it is consciously. What's the way to tackle that then, to to get people to see, oh, actually, there are these structural disadvantages? One, it's a balance of pessimism and optimism. So be pessimistic in that. Assume you will have no allies in terms of management or specifically in terms of, for example, the people responsible for the actions. And there will likely be many because it is systemic. It's not just any individual perpetrator. It's whomever was around them, whoever emboldened them to that point and let probably many more micro actions happen before whatever big incident has tipped you over the edge and document everything. Even if something was said in a meeting and others were there, 
note down what happened, note down who saw it, note it down and be optimistic in the sense that you may not be the only one affected. Even though you may not have obvious allies, you're probably not the first person that it's happened to, even if you may be, quote unquote, the first to challenge it. You're never really the first. So find allies, find others affected, find the efforts, even if they're not on the same injustice, but similar efforts. So for example, there may be other equal pay efforts, but in relation to a different characteristic or a different section of the workforce, because then you make it about something bigger. And also you're less likely to be targeted as harshly as an individual when it's part of a bigger picture. And it demonstrates that it's in the interest of other people as well. You're not just doing this for your own self. And how often is it the case that after time has passed, somebody would say to you, look, I couldn't see it was about this at the time, but actually looking back on it, we did have these problems in this organisation. I've actually had that happen quite a few times. Wow. Not from the candidates I perhaps would have loved to have heard it from the most. Yeah. So for example, there was a really lovely occasion where the person came to me years later saying that they did have power in that situation to have maybe taken a stand and used their influence in order to really um, echo what I was saying on um, a board or a committee that they were sitting on and they really regret it and that they even referenced that in the years since then they'd done like um, following Black Lives Matter they'd done training through their workplace and they said that all they could think about was what happened with me and that really warmed my heart and they actually hadn't done anything directly to me um, they said all the right things at the time but they were regretting having not been an active ally and done enough at the time so I've seen really ex- inspiring examples of deep reflection and yeah that's been years after the fact even So we talked about your early experience with this public sector employer. Then you went on to lead a campaign against student maternity discrimination. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So that was, I would say, even though I've been a campaigner in some form or another since I was 16, I would say that I properly had my initiation and became an accidental campaigner years later when I had taken a break from the workforce in order to go back to education And at the time I was pregnant and then everything was going well. And then I had rare complications where I was unable to walk for about three or so months. I was still able to study. My brain worked just fine. I just couldn't make it to classes and I needed extensions and such. And as soon as I mentioned that, I was suddenly being told that I have too much on my plate. Maybe I shouldn't be on the course, that they don't really need to accommodate me. And my instinct was, okay, look at procedures. What are my rights here? And then I asked around about the maternity policy and eventually I was told there is none for students. And then I looked at, okay, what does the law say? And I realised that there's no real compulsion for maternity policies to exist for students nationally in the way that there is for workers, where you have flexible working, you have maternity leave, you have protection from being sacked or a higher threshold for them to prove it's justified. Because students don't tend to sue, so there's no case law to frame it. So it was by accident that I discovered that loophole and... Through that, I was like, no, actually, I'm going to take a stand on this and I'm not just going to take a stand in the organisation. I want to address the core of this. And when you look at the specific success with the university, what does that mean for women now? It means that they can continue their degrees on the terms that work for them, whether that is pausing and taking a period of time to care for their child, whether that is continuing their studies, perhaps through flexible working, through extensions, through different timescales. I would hope that the change that I made gives some choice back to women. I hope it adds to that reproductive justice in education as we should have in work and in our personal lives. When you think about making that decision to to challenge the university, 
what was the potential negative outcome for you by putting yourself on the line like this? Well, unfortunately, it wasn't a potential negative outcome. I got a real negative outcome. So I campaigned for a good few years throughout my duration of the time there, one on their internal maternity policy, but also I campaigned nationally on it. I didn't have much progress when I was trying to go through internal procedures to change their extensions policy. Pregnancy and maternity would not be considered ever as grounds. But I think I went on to a press interview and I cited that policy as an example that within either hours or days, it ended up being changed where maternity and pregnancy could be considered for extensions. But by this point, I'd been spending years campaigning. I also became a staff member um, at the Students' Union in order to challenge it. So I became the women's officer. So I just put myself in the firing line from all directions. And then that took a lot of time. I needed extensions as a student as well. I applied. They acknowledged, yes, you have had extenuating circumstances great. The policy says my grades should be unaffected. They decided to break their policy and cap my grades at 40%, meaning that I had a pass, but the lowest possible, even though I got a first. And I challenged it and they said, nope, we will not move on this. And then I kept challenging it through all the procedures and they said, we're not changing it. And then I had to, this time, take on civil proceedings against them. And then as soon as the independent adjudicator got involved, they said, we think that you've done an Equality Act violation. Immediately, they uncapped my grades. But that was actually years after the fact. So only while I've been in the workforce in management and charity sector campaigning roles, have I got my grades back? So it wasn't a potential consequence. There were real consequences because of the noise I was making on something that was wrong. How does the balance of that feel? The changes that you've seen versus what it's cost to you as a person in terms of your energy and time? There were various points where my health was heavily impacted or even after the big success, whatever that success may be, there would be weeks or months where it's not even digesting because still angry, even if you got the win, you're dissatisfied about the culture that policy change can't really address at that point. And it's hard not to give in to despondency you look at the years that campaigning takes, you can measure it in your child's age or their height at some points. So Mm. I can't lie and say it doesn't have a cost, but I look at the gains as well. So much of my friend group and the things I value and even the career I've carved out have been because of either having an opportunity to exercise my values and meet people who who share them or being inspired by others who did the same thing and knowing that I'm not on my own. And in the mentoring that you now do, I'm guessing in early conversations you have with people, they can often feel quite powerless. What do you do to give them a sense of possibility and why it's worthwhile? What do you say to them? I try to encourage them that they've already done the most difficult part of it, which is sometimes acknowledging that what happened to you was wrong and bringing yourself to the point of challenging it. And I try to explain, yes, these processes are intimidating. In part, they're designed to be, but they are methodical. You can access support. There is free information and resources and we can navigate it together. So just knowing that someone's on their side, even if your case is different, we've been through similar things. Part of it, I guess, is there is this huge, when we talk about David and Goliath, we're really talking about a huge range of different circumstances. So this is kind of a tricky question, but broadly speaking, What could be done better to help support people who want to take on big guns, big dogs? I mean, is is it about demystifying those processes? Is it about making legal systems less intimidating? 
Is it about looking at what it costs people in terms of money and time? Really good points. I want to say everything that you've said, um, just to kind of put it into phases. I would say one, to make it easier, a huge part of it is being receptive to challenge. So when that first moment when someone says, hang on, this doesn't make sense, that doesn't look quite fair, not feeling attacked and defensive and actually hearing it out, being an ally, whether that's you're in management and you're in control of that, then being that person who takes it forward and says, actually, we should review this. And when that you've actually come to the point of bringing a complaint or bringing a claim, a huge aspect is access to information, demystification of processes, whether that's complaints procedures or just the timescale. So it's looking at whether the law can actually be accessed by the people affected by it and who are going to need to lean on it as a tool. It's been so good to talk to you and hear about your experiences and the work that you do. And it's so great to know that you then take that and use it to help other people. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Sophia. Thank you for having me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With us now is Jason Evans, who is founder and chair of Factor 8, which campaigns and advocates for people affected by the contaminated blood scandal of the 70s and 80s. Jason, hello. Hi, Jeff. Good to be with you. Very kind of you to take the time to talk to us. I wondered if we could start just to bring people up to speed on the history. Can you summarise the the scandal for us? I can, yes. So the the scandal centres around a blood product called Factor 8. And the reason why is that in the 70s and 80s, people with a bleeding disorder called haemophilia began to be treated with this new pharmaceutical product called Factor 8. And unlike the previous treatment, cryoprecipitate, the best way to think of that was something like a blood transfusion. This new product was commercialized for one, but importantly, it was made by mixing together the blood plasma donations of many thousands of people. And the problem was that when you do that, you only need one person infected with hepatitis, HIV, and it contaminates the whole batch. As a result of those products being used over you know, the best part of 15 years, 
thousands of people in the UK were infected with hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and HIV. As a result, we know that some 1,200 plus people with haemophilia were infected with HIV. We think up to 4,000 were infected with hepatitis C. And many of those people have died. The vast majority infected with HIV, including my own father, have died. And the fight for justice rumbles on to this, to this day. So obviously there's that personal connection there with your dad. And in terms of the story of that, when did you understand that this was the thing that killed your father? It was a very kind of gradual learning process for me. So I was four years old when my father died in 1993 um, as a result of hepatitis C and HIV. And I think my first realisation even that my dad had died of AIDS and AIDS had this stigma attached to it was when I was in primary school. I remember I was probably in year five, year six, and I, I went to take a drink from the water fountain. And, and one of the girls said, oh, that's the AIDS boy, you know, don't drink out the water fountain. And I remember that day, you know, asking my mom, you know, what is AIDS? Why would someone say this? And she explained kind of in a very simple way, I guess, to a, a child that my dad had had this thing called AIDS. And I think she mentioned factor eight, but I was a kid. I didn't fully understand what she was saying. So... That that was kind of the start for me in understanding it. It wasn't really until, I guess, my teenage years that I really began to understand what had happened. And, and when you talk to family members and people who knew your dad about that time, what do you hear about that story and, and the way these events played out? Yeah, I mean, to this day, you know, my mum cannot speak about what happened without crying, even all these, you know, decades on. You know, at the time, in the late 80s, early 90s, I know that members of my family would write to the government. I have copies of the letters at home. And there's one very poignant letter I have that my auntie wrote where she says she talks about the prospects of me being bullied at school and my dad not being able to see me grow up. And this was all, you know, before my dad had died. And it's very odd when I read that back now, seeing that everything she wrote in that letter, the concerns, it all came true. Given that your family contacted the, the government, that there were campaigns, how did you come to feel that you could make a difference? The prospect felt potentially futile initially. It did. It did because I knew that campaigns had gone on in the past. I mean, I, I didn't get involved in campaigning on this issue really until 2015. And the, the spark for me to become involved in campaigning really was that there had been a Scottish inquiry called the Penrose Inquiry. And I was kind of vaguely aware of this, but wasn't involved. And when I found out this inquiry was going to report, I took the day off work and sat there waiting for something. I thought today's going to be the day where there's some big revelation, there's some outcry, you know, something's going to come. And it didn't, it was widely branded a whitewash and, and it, it really didn't do much at all. So I was really angry, I think, like a lot of people. And it lit a fuse in me that day to want to do something. I didn't know where to begin or what to do. But I guess the starting point for me was looking more deeply at what had gone on in the past and to start to make contact with some of the key figures, such as Lord David Owen, who was health minister back in the 70s. He had said for years that he had tried to make it so this country wouldn't import 
dangerous products from overseas and that hadn't happened. The topic of this episode is David and Goliath and listening to your talk there, it seems certainly at that stage, the things that were making the difference, obviously a solid evidence based understanding of what had happened, but it was forging connections with people like Lord Owen and then actually making noise. Is there anything else or is that is that right? You know, at, at the beginning, I think some of the tactics that I used were almost guerrilla tactics in a way. I mean, the first time I ever met anyone else impacted by the scandal was when there was a, a protest in 2016 outside Parliament. Something that, you know, I had done was to take a pile of brown envelopes, which I'd put in what I thought were key documents about the scandal and what had happened. And I was kind of just apprehending MPs and, and giving them, you know, these these envelopes of information. And I remember on that day, I'd given uh, one of these envelopes to SMP MP Alison Thewlis. And she, in turn, had given my envelope to another SNP MP called Dr. Philippa Whitford. And within hours later that afternoon, that evidence was being read out in the House of Commons. Wow. In a debate. And that showed me, you know, as, as a kid with no political connections at all, that with, with some persistence, you can make things happen. I'd organised a documentary screening of an American documentary called Bad Blood, A Cautionary Tale. And yeah, it did make noise. You know, I, I paid, I think, over a, a grand out of my own pocket, a lot of money to hire the venue. Thankfully, Lord Owen came, but it did make noise. Yeah. I wondered if there were any issues around getting attention for a story that is decades old yeah media attention spans are quite short what's what's the key to keeping a story like this alive in the public consciousness i think um one of the things i found quite quickly was that both broadcast and print media seem to always have this natural inclination to want the human story and i understand why but there's only so many times you can say this person was infected with HIV, this person died, before you have to explain why it was wrong, why it was a scandal, how it could have been prevented. And so that was always my focus. And so my kind of conscious strategy was I would go to the National Archives, the Welcome Collection, places where I knew or found relevant documents were. My kind of task really was to pluck out the little stories within the bigger story take the documents and make them in a simple way that the press could understand and would run. I quickly found that if I gave those stories on an exclusive basis, they had more chance of actually being run. And so I, I was kind of learning by trial and error, having no prior experience in journalism whatsoever, how to get those stories in. One of the ones that did make a really big difference was in 2017, a week before the inquiry was announced by Theresa May. On the 4th of July, 2017, one of my stories was on the front page of the Daily Mail. And that was the same day that we lodged our group legal action in the High Court. We also had a letter that was signed by the leaders of all opposition parties. And I think with those things, the media, political and legal pressure combining in one week in, into kind of a pinnacle, that ultimately, I think, is what tipped it and got the inquiry. And how much of a victory did that announcement feel like when Theresa May said there's going to be an inquiry? Where were you when you found out? 
I was at work at the time I was doing marketing for an automotive company. I'd gone on my lunch break and I'd gone into the work kitchen and the accountant who I got on really well with, he was aware that I was involved in, in a campaign. He said to me, oh, you know, well done on the announcement, by the way. And I said, what do you mean? What, what announcement? And he pulled out his phone and showed me a BBC News article about how an inquiry had been announced. And I said, I think I need to leave immediately, actually. <laughs> and I then rang our lawyers. And yeah, we had quite an awesome phone call. And I, yeah, I was stunned. I could not believe it. And that inquiry is due to report mid-late next year. What type of outcome would feel like justice for your dad and all the other people and families affected? I think there's a, a number of things. The biggest one for me, I think, is when the Penrose, the Scottish Inquiry, reported, it was said at the launch of their final report that there was little that could or should have been done differently. And I think if this inquiry can report, and I, I'm pretty confident it will, given the evidence it's, it's heard, there was actually there was a lot that could and should have been done differently, that this was avoidable and the state was at fault. I think that, for me, is the single biggest thing, to know that the last kind of six years of my life have meant something. I know for all of the community, those losses that people have suffered do need to be recognised. And ultimately, where you know individuals that are still around are found to be culpable, where evidence may be you know, passed on to the relevant authorities, there may be other actions that need to be taken against individuals at fault. Just thinking about those six years and this topic of David and Goliath, is it inevitable that in a situation like this where an individual or a smaller number of individuals take on a huge institution that it has to take the kind of emotional toll and, and toll in terms of time and effort and energy and what it does to your nervous system? I wonder if you have any thoughts on whether it could look different. It could look massively different. I mean, it's took a huge personal toll on me. You know, I gave up my full-time job to be able to do this campaign. I've sacrificed lots of time to it that could have been spent either pursuing career interests or time with friends, time with family. But I am, you know, expecting my first child in, in January. Oh, congratulations. And, well, thank, thank you. Um, and obviously, if that had been the case a few years back, maybe I would have looked at things differently. One of the main things we do not have in this country that we should have is a formal route to requesting or getting a public inquiry. It doesn't exist at, at present. And so you have this situation where it's entirely down to a political judgment if you just so happen to be in the right place at the right time with the right minister and the wrong civil servants aren't in your way. And it, I don't think that should be the case. And it does beg the question, and I think it's one this inquiry will answer, is why did it take 30 plus years for there to be any formal UK-wide investigation into this at all? And if somebody's listening to this at the sharp end of an injustice, but feel overwhelmed at the scale of the challenge of taking on a huge organisation or, or even a government, you know, you just described the cost in some ways to your life, what, what makes it worthwhile? I think firstly, there is potentially some light at the end of the tunnel in the form of a renewed campaign to bring in a form of Hillsborough law, which would 
place a duty of candor on public authorities and would make it easier for people to get investigations and to address these kinds of long-standing injustices. It is worth pursuing uh, an injustice because I know for me, if I would have just left this in a box and said, I'm going to just try and get on with my life and ignore this, 20 years from now, I would be looking back saying, maybe I should have done something and I didn't. It, it would be a huge regret. So you do also need to have a line of where you're prepared to go because as much as what I've just said is true, at the same time, I wouldn't want to be, you know, 30 years from now, still sitting at my computer, kids asking where, where's dad? Oh, he's trying to get to the truth about the infected blood scandal, you know. So do you, do you have a line then? Is this, is this something in mind? I do. I mean, there are currently three kind of objects on our campaign table, which are this inquiry. We have a report on compensation that was published by Sir Robert Francis QC and delivered to the government in March. And we also have our group legal action pending at, at the High Court. And they're all kind of in, interconnected. And once they're done, I'm done, basically, with this particular campaign. That's, that is my car. Well, best of luck with all three of those. And, and I think people are going to be incredibly impressed by your dedication and the, the way you've gone about this. Thank you. I hope 2023 brings you closer to, uh, to the justice that you've been fighting so hard for. And Jason, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks a lot, Jeff. With me now is Alicia Alenia, who is partner and COO at Pogus Goodhead, which is a law firm that specialises in representing individuals, taking on multinational corporations, governments, institutions. Hello, Alicia. Hello. The reason we were keen to talk to you is that the firm has taken on the case of victims of the uh, Mariana Dam disaster in Brazil in, in 2015. Can you refresh us on the detail of that? What, what happened, who was affected, how they were affected? The Mariana Dam disaster started off with the multinational BHP setting up their infrastructure, which was very poorly built, in an area in terms of distance from London to Edinburgh. And BHP is this huge, one of the biggest, as I understand it, in the world, mining conglomerates. Correct. Correct. And the infrastructure was so poorly built that a huge wave of uh, dam uh, disasters happened that virtually destroyed the entirety of that distance. And that included people's homes, their livelihoods, the indigenous population. It polluted a lot of their water, which means that there are ongoing consequences for all of the people affected in that region. And seven years on, they're still suffering. People will remember it as a big news story at the, the time and with terrible consequences. I guess the question is, how does it end up on the desk of a law firm in London? I think that's what's so inspiring about this whole story and very much fitting with, with the whole theme of your show about David and Goliath. This started out with one barrister taking an interest in this case, and that's our founding partner and managing partner, who's the CEO of the firm, Tom Goodhead. So he, he heard the horrendous news like the rest of us and, and he thought there's something to be done here. Correct. So someone had uh, approached him from Mariana, a lawyer within Mariana, about this specific case. And the question then was whether we would be able to win jurisdiction to hear these cases within a UK jurisdiction. Because the idea was that in order to do that, we would be able to get um, recompense for all those affected far more effectively in a UK jurisdiction. 
And so there started a fight. This was a barrister who, at the time, Tom had to do a huge amount of research and digging to see if there was a case to be made against this huge multinational. He was one man at the time. The case was totally unfunded and lawyers within Brazil were struggling to make this work. And so he went around the world trying to get funding, trying to get support for it. It started off with conversation with some of the American lawyers. And in fact, we even liaised with friends of Aaron Brockovich. It's wow. something out of one of those, those wonderful stories that come to fruition. Can I just ask you that phrase, class action? I'm, I'm used to hearing that in American legal drama. Is, is that common in the UK? Do, do we tend to use a different name for it? Because um, this, this consists of, I think, like more than 200,000 people. Correct. It's one of the biggest class actions this country has ever seen within this jurisdiction. And in fact, class actions probably haven't been so much known within the UK, within England and Wales jurisdiction. It's something, as you say, far more akin to the Americans. But it is a tool that people are now using, ordinary people who have been wronged by multinationals, governments, to come together as a group and have lawyers like us representing them, because there is no other way of getting recourse. We lost at the first instance. We tried to get jurisdiction. It was thrown out. In April 22, the court unanimously agreed that there was absolutely every case to to bring this this case in, in an English jurisdiction. And what's really quite comforting is as a result of this case, it's actually opening up the ability for these types of cases to be made. So it, you know, in some ways, this is kind of the case of all cases, because it not only... Imp- hopefully will ensure that the those impacted, those over 200,000 claimants across Mariana will be compensated once BHB come to the table and discuss negotiations and some very fair settlement for our clients. But also it opens up the ability for multinationals to be held to account. So that was the big victory then. And is, is that to do with the fact that multinational corporations can be cagey, to say the least, about where they consider themselves to be headquartered and possibly in the past um, organisations have, have used that as a way of avoiding justice under certain legal systems. Yes, I think there's a lot There's a lot to be said about that. But also, you know, as lawyers, we have to take the view of where it's best for a, a case to be heard, where there will be a great deal of focus on the areas of which we're seeking recourse and we felt that the English courts were was the best forum for that to be heard. And in fact, you know, the courts have agreed with us, which puts these claimants in a very, very strong position. I think one of the concerns that we have is that this is now seven years on. So imagine your entire livelihood, your place of living, of work has been utterly destroyed and you're still waiting for those people who've been responsible for that to make good, to, to allow you to, to fulfil some form of livelihood going forward. What's the reaction been like in Brazil? Because as I mentioned, we're talking about a huge number of people. And, and as you say, it's been a considerable amount of time. Is there optimism? I think up until April this year, I think there was a level of kind of concern, absolute frustration, which is undoubtedly natural for people who've been affected so badly. But I think since then, and we are constantly on the road, the legal team are out literally going to every single municipality, to every single road to ensure that the clients are fully aware of what's happened on the case. It's one of those things that you only see in documentaries and in films. 
lawyers doing what they're supposed to do, which is really backing those without voice, without power, to ensure that they're represented in the most effective way. And I think since then, there is this this belief and this hope that BHP will do what's right and will do what's right for all of these clients so that they can get back to some form of normality. And I think since then, of course, no one can fully compensate for what's happened to them over the last seven years. But this is where the legal process is, comes into its own. Is this victory, having heard in the English court, is that going to be one of these things that sets a precedent and actually affects the way that global corporations behave in the future? It sort of forces them to think about whose doorstep they're dumping on, I guess. Well, that's exactly our entire motivation. Of course, we're a law firm. You know, don't get me wrong. We are a commercial entity just like any other business. But the, the, the principle on which we were built is this case, which is that we took the brave decision to take on a multinational based on one barrister thinking that he could take them all on. And so the entire values based of this firm is to say, look, this case gives us absolutely the ability to say you cannot at will go around the world and set up your corporations and your infrastructure that it ends up harming not only the environment, but people also. So in some sense, the firm is the the David, but in another sense, you're David's advocates. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how well you think our legal system or justice system is set up for people without money or connections or clout to, to take on the powerful. It's a really interesting question, Jeff. I've been in the legal industry for the last 20 years. So I started off as a as a litigator. And actually, we've made it harder for people to access justice with all the various regulatory reforms that we've had, the changes that were made to the employment tribunals and on. But I think there is a, a real sea change when it comes to class actions, because there is no more power than a, a collective aim to seek redress And I think as a result of cases like Mariana, there is scope for the courts to actually deal with these cases in a very different way. We still have some way to go. We, We need to be able to have greater kind of flexibility when it comes to the process for class actions that is still based on a very kind of archaic system in terms of the process. But I think we could get there very quickly if we worked collaboratively with the courts to make some slight changes to the the rules so that it enables people to bring action. There's a host of different things, you know, housing disrepair, the cladding crisis, financial mis-selling. Those are individuals who are impacted, but as part of a collective claim, they've got far greater power. Just finally, how do you stay optimistic? Is it actually this romantic idea of the law that I've got that the principles are there and it's, it's just a question of applying them and making the arguments? I've been lucky enough to work with some great people and everybody's motivated to get justice, to do the right thing. And when you get these amazing victories like the Mariana appeal, and there are moments where the courts will absolutely back you 100%. And that's the thing that keeps you motivated and going. You know that at some point our clients will get what they deserve and we'll make sure that happens. Well, it's been great talking to you and and hearing about the victory with the Mariana case, but also just about the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Alicia. Thank you very much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. And that was our podcast for this week. Thanks to all our guests, Sophia Moreau, Jason Evans and Alicia Alenia. 
Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish London. And we will be back to normal for next week's Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.